I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you as the snow continues to fall here in the mountains of Utah. My guest this week is artist, writer, and narrative designer Grace P. Fong. Grace has created art content for speculative fiction publications and promotional material for authors, including designing the weapons for my very own Powder Mage RPG, and she is exhibited regularly at conventions. She's also published short fiction in Uncanny Magazine. For her day job, she's worked as a narrative designer for Magic the Gathering and spent 10 years as a senior technical artist on blockbuster movies and AAA video games. Grace and I chat about her work with movie and game studios as an animation problem solver. We go over the insane complexity of these studios and the hard work that goes into rendering as much as a single frame of animation. We also swap medical stories and discuss the difficulty of dealing with healthcare when you're working gigs, changing companies, or self-employed. Enjoy my conversation with Grace P. Fong. All right, so how long have you been in Canada now? I've been in Canada for, uh, since 2017. So okay, I'd been planning on moving up here for a while, basically because like I'd visited a couple of times and I really liked it. Um, I really liked the uh, the environment and just the temperature and like I'm I'm a cold weather person for sure, and just like kind of it was really clean and so and there's a lot of outdoorsy stuff, a lot of hiking and things, but yeah, that was honestly before the election before like Twitter going really. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Before Twitter became a major news source because I was working in the entertainment industry and uh, there's a really large portion of film that gets made up here. So it was kind of like a job move concern because it's like having worked in those kind of gig economies of entertainment making, um, in LA, a lot of it is sustained by having a union that helps cover your healthcare, helps cover your retirement stuff between your various jobs, as long as you put in a certain number of hours with each stu- with the unionized studios um, per year. But video games was not unionized, and so uh, a lot of those skills apply to companies up here as well. But they there's more government services to help maintain those drops between different uh gigs right and and like kind of a lot of people that work in any creative industry like man all of that stuff that kind of uh i guess nine to five kind of office workers take for granted like (laughs) health insurance for instance trying to figure that crap out sucks. Yeah. It's really hard. Um, cause you know, in the, when, 
I got laid off once in California. It's like, you have to go into the unemployment office and like, then you have to set yourself up on Cobra and then you need to go to the insurance marketplace. And it's like, um, then you need to like roll over your 401k and everything. And it's just super impractical. I think tying these kind of like lifelong services to something that is so volatile, such as like a specific company. Yeah. Well, especially when like that company, like it might not exist tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Companies change just as much as workers change, right? (laughs) Like it's so unreliable. And, you know, I mean, like I, I consider that I have had an incredibly stable career as an author so far. And I still worked for two different companies in the course of what's it been around 10 years or so. So like, that's like, you know, when you, when you look at people like, like kind of boomers have this idea of kind of like, oh, we, uh, you know, you work for one company and you work for the <laughs> your time in is that doesn't happen. No, definitely not anymore. Like I feel, um, as we've gone to like greater democratization of services and more diversity of like what people need in their lives, like, and people's desire to advance themselves career-wise, you can't just stick to one company anymore, especially because as companies become more uh, global and stuff, they're going to have different priorities. Yeah. And the complexity from like both from the company side, the complexity of trying to provide health insurance for workers in nine different countries or even nine different states. Oh man, that was a huge thing, right? Like during the pandemic, people started working more remotely and like the biggest deterrent I think for companies adapting to that was actually adjusting to the health insurance needs of having people everywhere. Yeah, it's it's kind of a wild thing. Like it's weird because you like I don't consider myself like a like a super socialist or anything. But there's so many things about like having standardized healthcare across the country that just like makes so much sense for anybody. Like, man, I don't know that the, like you and I probably think about this kind of <laughs> stuff way more than the average person does because we have to deal with it. Yeah. Like, I mean, up in Canada here, it's kind of, you can roll into any hospital and get treatment, which is really convenient. But I had appendicitis when I was in LA and one of the, and I was working for an American company. And one of the things that we had to do was I went to an urgent care. So I paid my copay there and they were like, Hey, uh, you're going to need surgery. Um, we can either, we can call an ambulance that will cost X dollar X thousand dollars. We could, uh, send you to this hospital or you send you to that hospital. And I have to go like, myself and go look up which hospital will accept my insurance so that I'm not paying the full price uh, that the company would pay on this thing. Um, It's kind of like so much of the billing onus is put on somebody who is not in a position to negotiate. Yeah, for sure. I had um, a few, a few months ago, I had a heart thing where I just suddenly ended up in the hospital and they told me, Oh, you have a, you have a birth defect in your heart. Oh my God. And and they're like, this is a type of thing that may kill you. Uh, so we're, but it's like a relatively easy surgery. And so we're going to schedule you and we'll get it done. And like I was in the hospital for, I think four days. So honestly, it wasn't as bad as it could be, but I did that. And I, it, along the course of that whole thing, I had a private room for four days. I had a hospital ride from the, the ER that I went to. 
like or a uh, ambulance ride. I had a bunch of different things happen. And the like, but the same week, my wife had emergency back surgery. Oh, wow. Which was a, it was again, kind of, as far as these things go, a much lower key thing. It was something that we planned on taking care of, but got severe quickly. And she had not yet hit her deductible for her insurance. And I had. And so like when my bill arrived, my bill was like $180,000 <gasps> reduced to zero. Oh, yeah. Because I already had paid my deductible. She hadn't gotten her deductible. So hers was like $25,000 reduced to $5,000. Yeah. Um, and so when you're dealing with that kind of crap, you're just like, like, how's the average person supposed to like juggle that along with everything else going on in their lives? I know. And $5,000, that's like not money to sneeze at. Like no. that keeps you alive, like day to day costs for a really long time, especially when people are paying like, you know, four digit numbers for rent in certain cities. So that kind of big hit is uh, really a large portion of like, I feel what causes a lot of financial insecurity in the United States. And it's something that I think if things like emergency care and like maintenance care, I guess, were more handled through wider systems, then like people would be able to function more just on a day-to-day basis. Like I sliced my finger open um, last year on a mandolin because I'm, I'm a genius uh, <laughs> and the the trip there i mean that slice of finger was totally gone but i so i went to the er and they put anticoagulant on foam just like kind of bandaged me up and said don't shower this hand for like two weeks yeah it grew back but the only thing that we paid for was chicken nuggets on the ride home oh my god and so like but any er visit like it wouldn't stop bleeding so it's like i had to go emergency services i couldn't like wait for tomorrow right which would be which would have been my regular practice in the united states right you just you you throw some duct tape on that thing and and hope that it's fine right because if i go to urgent care it costs me like even with insurance, it cost me $150 less in the United States going urgent care instead of emergency room. Yeah. But here, like emergency room, the weight was because the I'd managed to staunch the bleeding with a good amount of gauze. The weight was like maybe an hour, an hour and a half. Oh. It can be up to three or four. I've uh, been with people who've been there for a really long time. And yeah, like the trade off is uh, very often you have to wait for services because of the um because because of the uh, generalized uh more socialist system yeah 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 which isn't necessarily all that different from in the u.s especially right now you're not there's not as many healthcare workers you know things grow behind they're always going to order you in terms of severity you know like and that's something that like i saw when i had both me and michelle had problems the same week i went into the er and they're like, you have a heart problem? Go back there right now. And then she went to the ER and they're like, you sit and wait for a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hospital triage is basically like that. It's um, basically time and management based off of how severe the issues are. Like, if my bleeding is staunched and somebody comes in with a gunshot wound, I think that person just priority. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, had that, uh, we had that with the emergency vet 
a couple of months ago. We took our cat up there. We thought there was something going on with him. Um, it turned out to be kind of nothing, which was both frustrating, but also nice. Um, but we were up there for like eight hours because, you know, we get in there, we get checked in and then other people come in with more pressing issues. And so we're just waiting in the car because, you know, they took our cat and they're like, oh, you stay here. And it's an hour drive home. So we're like, oh, we better stay just around. And, and then we like, we, we saw somebody carry their dog in. Oh my God. Like covered in blood and stuff and we're like well you know what we'll just wait happily (laughs) wow like that's horrible yeah so yeah you know it's but that's just gonna be healthcare in general trying to triage that stuff but um yeah i don't know it's it's a crazy thing that you kind of are faced with a lot more when you work for yourself um and you do contract work yep and and so, you know, like a lot of people just don't even notice because it's something their business takes care of. And uh, yeah, I think it's also something that, like I have a lot of friends who are in the tech industry. Right. And like what with Meta, Twitter, Amazon, so many layoffs are going on now. Like this is the first time that they've had to get on like UI first time that they've had to like look up the health insurance marketplaces and stuff of their state. And what boggles me further is that if this is the system, which is pretty common in America, where you just get laid off and you have to suddenly pick up all these services yourself, nobody really teaches you how and where they are. And it's different for every state. Like if you move, you have to do this all over again. When I was, uh, when I was, when I first went kind of self-employed, I think I was 25 or 26 and I like, I hadn't really had good, a good job. So I really hadn't really had my own insurance and things. I think I'd been floating along on my parents for quite a lot of that, but like going self-employed and trying to learn all of that stuff. It's so intimidating, especially when you're young and you haven't dealt with that kind of thing before it's man, it could be terrifying. Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like so many freelancers are just basically like going around being like crossing their fingers, hoping they don't get sick. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that can be really rough. Like, and I don't know, I I guess I think about the whole thing as like, like when society is healthier, like that makes me healthier. Like, like I, I take, I I like to think of it as like, I get, I get kind of personal benefit from society taking care of its own kind of thing. And so, you know, that's where I drift very much closer to let's have some standardized socialized medicine and stuff like that. Yeah, I agree because like, I mean, obviously made the effort to move here, but I think like just even from like an economic or uh, resourcing perspective, if you have a level of standardized care for um, handling a lot of like the smaller issues, you get a lot of preventative care and the preventative actually ends up uh, saving you more in the long run because then the emergencies are like real emergencies and not issues where it's something that if you had taken care of it earlier, it would not have been so expensive. But I feel like with people living paycheck to paycheck and not having the ability to save up, um, even for the smaller things, they will um, generally put like delay issues. Like, so there's this weird thing where nobody really knows what teeth are, right? They're... (laughs) (laughs) they're kind of like bones they're kind of like skin but they have like nerves and blood vessels inside right yeah so if you have a toothache 
and you're like, ah, whatever, it's just affecting my ability to chew. You put it off, you put it off, you put it off. There is a slight chance that the bacteria will go through the blood vessel in the tooth into your brain and suddenly kill you and you have encephalitis from a toothache. That's, oh, that's going to keep me up tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I have, I, I have so many tooth problems. Like my, like, well, and cause in the U S like your insurance <laughs> rarely covers dental. Like dental is one of those mm-hmm. things you have to like get separate and is rarely worth it. And so if you've got bad teeth, you're screwed. Like the first year that I felt like really secure in my writing career. And I felt like, okay, financially I'm feeling good. I need to take care of all these things I've been putting off. I spent like six grand on my teeth. Whoa. <laughs> like my dentist loved me that year. <laughs> Cause I was in there so much. I had, a, I had a full, uh, I had a full tooth pulled and like a new one put in like whole new tooth. Oh, wow. Um, you have a fancy, better know, looking tooth now. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, Hey, it's a great tooth. I love it. It's, uh, it's done well for me so far. Uh, but like, uh, that was, um, that was when I learned the benefits of laughing gas. Um, <laughs> I haven't had to do the laughing gas thing. Cause I, I, I had never had a dentist that offered it before. And the guy, like I went in and the nurse was all like, um, do you want laughing gas for this? And I said, I don't know. Do I? And she's like, you're getting a tooth pulled. You want it. <laughs> and let me tell you, that was the best advice I got that year. I hope someone recorded you afterwards <laughs> and asked you many questions. <laughs> I, I remember like, at, like when it happened, I heard the crunch of them pulling the tooth (gasps) and my brain just went, huh, that's funny. (laughs) And that was my whole reaction to it. Oh my gosh. I still have all four of my wisdom teeth. So I've never done the, I've never had to be passed out for any dental stuff. Yeah. I've never been passed out before. Uh, lots and lots of painkillers, but never, never put under. Yeah. I was put under for my appendicitis, but that's it. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was put under for the heart thing. And that was the first time I'd ever had to go under for and like general anesthetic, I guess. Um, and that's, that's like, so weird. Like I came, I d- that was a weird experience for me. Cause I was like, is this what death feels like? <laughs> <laughs> because you're just literally talking to someone one second and then it's just black. And then, yeah, he's like, count backwards. And you're like, I don't even remember reaching one. (laughs) Exactly. Like, it's so sudden. Oh, that it like it genuinely that thing with the heart definitely had me like in a weird place emotionally because, you know, I got like they, they had to restart. So I went under twice. Once for the surgery and once when I first got to the hospital and they had to reset my heart. So they put me under and uh, defibrillated me. Um, And uh, and so but like both of those, like it was just the weirdest experience, like just being induced unconscious and knowing that something crazy had just happened to you, Mm -hmm. but having no memory of it. Yeah. Yeah. You just wake up and you're like, oh, okay, that feels a little odd, but Uh, it's, it's the weirdest stuff. Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. 
You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. So you have worked on a ton of different things in your career. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> we were going to get there eventually. Because um, you've worked on video games. You've worked on movies. You've worked, uh, you currently work for Wizards of the Coast uh, on Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're, you've gone to a lot of different places. Like, is that, where does kind of that jumping between, because from an outsider's perspective, that feels very much like jumping <laughs> yeah, <'cause> <laughs> HR is always like, what the heck? <laughs> well, it's like jumping careers, even though uh, ostensibly I'm, I'm guessing you have kind of done similar things for each place. Um, like, uh, I can't believe <laughs> I'm going to quote one of my old bosses. And essentially he's likes to refer to, he thinks that um, people in this industry do well, who are basically T-shaped people. So people that have a broad understanding of the pipeline of creating a piece of media, and then they specialize in one thing or another about it. And so I feel that this kind of learning is what actually enabled me to jump from job to job. Cause it actually is kind of like switching careers. Yeah. Uh, so I started off as a uh, computer science student when I, my majors in computer science, got my master's in it. Um, while I was working. And so basically having that programming knowledge means that you can work almost anywhere. A lot of my friends went into big tech, Microsoft, Amazon. Uh, well, nobody who went to Amazon is still there. Um, <laughs> nobody went to Meta is still there either. <laughs> but, uh, a lot of them went the big tech and then after big tech went to do smaller techs or startups, um, I've got a friend who is using his knowledge of video games to create uh, games to improve people's uh, cognitive and physical ability after they've had seizures because the repetitive motion of gamifying a challenge like that helps with recovery. Oh, that's stupidly interesting. Yeah, he's super. It's going to be super cool. And another friend went from computer science to mechanical engineering to help develop better stretchers to uh, move overweight people yeah. from place to place. So that reduces risk of injury, makes any um, surgeries easier. And um, I think it's really helpful for the medical industry because then you don't damage people as often when you're like trying to perform surgery on them. But I'm probably the only one who's still in entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> it's been like almost 15 years now. Yeah. I'll give you an idea of how old I am. Um, and it was, we started off learning about the pipeline, like what are all the different parts of who contributes to each piece of a movie and the technolo- technological backbone between a movie and a video game is very similar. It's just that there's more coding in a video game that allows a player to basically move through the movie. Whereas in the movie, um, you are trying to output a, bunch of still images that when they get chained together turn into animation it's it's literally just a f- digital flip book yeah. <laughs> all movies are the same they're just flip books on film and so with 
the technology is all the same, but they have different concerns. So the movie, it's all about getting really amazing images for each frame of that um, flip book. So you spend a lot of time, you literally can spend overnight rendering a single like image. That's one of the famous things. They were like every hair on Sully's head in Monsters, Inc. Like it took overnight to render one sequence with Sully because he has so many hairs. Yeah. But in gaming, the person needs to be able to interact with this digital world. So you have to do a lot of corner cutting and a lot of um, kind of tricks to make that world realized and believable while the player can still interact with it at a certain speed and still maintain that illusion. Because if the game starts to chug, the nobody likes that gameplay experience. Like your input, you have to, if you notice a delay between I push that button and something happens on the screen, it's incredibly frustrating. <laughs> well, and, and any gamer will be able to tell you that, like, because you, like, you know, you know, your games, you know how fast things move. And when it's suddenly slightly off, like yep. that totally messes up your rhythm and you notice, you know. Yeah, people actually like have different, um, I guess, internal frame speeds, right? Like my partner's is way faster than mine because he's trained himself on fighting games, FPS games. And those are games that have to operate at 60 frames per second. That's essentially the um, as high like as a human being can go. That's like the human eye frame rate. Yeah. But because I was very much a film person, book person, I like those point and click games where speed isn't really an issue. Like I can watch something at 20 to 30 FPS, literally half of that. And I don't feel any lag, meaning I'm really bad at all the games that my partner's good at, but (laughs) you know, to each their own. I, uh, I tried to get back into League of Legends earlier this year, uh, and I, I played it for like four years or something like that. I was in the original beta, and I, and I played the first couple of seasons. Wow. And I tried getting back into it, and, and it, was, it was like torture. I, I just, like, this is a game I used to know really well and I used to love, and I, I had no concept of being able to do the things I used to be able to do. It was very weird. Yeah, like... Also, Daigo Umahara is a fighting game player who is on the older end. And by older, I mean, like, above 30. Like, (laughs) basically, um, you know, when you are a teenager, you have much quicker reflexes. So Daigo had to spend a lot of time training um, as he grew older in order to maintain his ability to react so fast. Like... I knew people that were professional gamers for these quick games in their uh, late teens, early 20s, and they'd be like, oh, it's time for me to quit and retire and go to college. (laughs) And they'd still be young enough that that's not weird for them to be in those classes. Yeah. (laughs) But so strange. It never even occurred to me that, like, the human eye would have, like, a frame rate. That's really interesting. Uh, Yeah, and apparently, like... Uh, dogs, they like the reason they're so good at things that we're not good at is they basically see in bullet time. Their frame rate is higher. Yeah, that's why they can catch a frisbee in midair, and we sometimes struggle. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I do. <laughs> Depending on who you are, like me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when so so when you were working because you worked on uh, Kung Fu Panda Two, right, and the Crudes. Yes, that was my first. <laughs> Yeah. So, so what was like your duty? Like, what did you do for the movie? So essentially, um, 
this is very inside baseball, but it's like, I was a plumber on the CG pipeline. So <laughs> I love this kind of shit. And if my, re- my listeners don't, then they can deal with it. <laughs> so yeah, get, no, go, go ahead, please. So we have all these tools, every single video game, every single film and stuff, every studio has a bunch of tools, uh, really common ones nowadays that are made by big companies that allow people to like license them and make their own games would be Unreal and Unity. And so for film, because it's an older industry, they tend to have a lot of custom pipelines that use third party tools jammed in at different places. So it's like, oh, we're going to use Maya to make the 3D models. That's kind of like making the puppets for the animated puppet show for your stop stop motion. Digital animation is basically digital stop motion. So they're like, oh, here's my digital puppet of Poe, the panda. And basically because there's so much input and output and all of these third-party companies like Maya will suddenly release a new plugin or update their software, Uh, the plumbing of the pipeline needs constant maintenance. And so I was one of maybe a hundred people at the DreamWorks animation studio who paid attention to different sections of the pipeline. So my job was to figure out like, Hey, if this shot didn't come through uh, and the fur texture on Poe looked really weird, it was my job to dig down into that shot, figure out where something went wrong. Is the problem the tool or is the problem the way the artist set it up? And then work as a communication person between the artist and the engineering department to try and resolve that and make sure that the antelopes all wear pants. So you were like a like a, a, a animation problem solver. Yes. Oh, that's really, really interesting. And there were like a hundred of you. Just for that movie? Not for the movie, across the studio. So each. Across the studio. Okay. (laughs) That's crazy. I mean, like, you know what I do for a living. It's like me and then a couple of people at my publisher, and then a book comes. Like, when you get the perspective of how many people it takes to make a big movie, it just, your mind just explodes. Yeah. So for us, there's about 20 people, 20 plumbers per movie. Yeah. And each. there's about like six or seven departments. So each department has between one and th- one and five plumbers just to service their department. So you kind of have this um, relationship of like one plumber to like 10 artists. Huh. That's such a crazy thing. And to, but to be able to do that, you need to know both the engineering side and the artistic side. Yep. <laughs> and that's like having the two skill sets and being able to communicate between them like that's a very particular thing all these like jobs where you're kind of like situated between departments um they're not stuff that you learn about in school very often they're also kind of like hidden when you go to like job boards and stuff like that because they have a different name at every single studio but they're i find them really interesting because they are ways that you can learn more while you're working and yeah so the art i made was not good And my code was not good, but because I could talk to either side and get stuff done, I could always figure out somebody who could help me put together what I needed. Yeah. Oh, that's, that is really interesting. It's like such a, such like a little bit of like kind of the, um, the nuts and bolts of trying to create something like that. I, I don't know. I find that kind of stuff super interesting. Yeah. So did you do, it's not glamorous, but it's, (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's incredibly necessary. I mean, like 
like that's essentially entertainment infrastructure, right? Like you're trying to keep these things running so that eventually we see, you know, Kung Fu Panda 2, right? <laughs> yep. I don't know. I, I think that's really cool. And uh, that kind of, that kind of inter- infrastructure, that kind of like knowledge set is like you said, it's not something you talk about in school. And so it's, it's not, it's not a thing that people, you know, springs to mind when they say, you know, let's make a movie. Um, you know, like the average person, they'll think, oh, there's animators and there's, you know, advertisers. Yeah, you know, I don't know what else, but you know, they're not thinking of all the little things that are necessary to, you know, to grease the wheels. Yeah, like um, one of the things that I am always so thankful for is most productions will have a producer or somebody who's handling all of the schedules, all the back payments, all of like the talking between departments to make sure that everybody's aligned. And it's such a thankless job, but it's really what exactly what you said keeps the grease going because it makes sure everybody's talking to everybody at once to be on the same page yeah yeah it's uh it's funny because when when we say the word when we say the word manager you know like most of us imagine (laughs) you know like they they you know you imagine something from like you know the office or whatever you know like you imagine some bumbling dude that is not really necessary but like you know, manage manager. They're, they're called that because they're supposed to manage. They're supposed to coordinate all the stuff going on in to. their business, whatever that business is. And uh, and and there's so many pieces to kind of move around and change. And ah, oh, gosh, th- th- these things can get so complex. Yeah, actually, the studios where I've worked is basically because that piece, um, because managing the schedules and stuff like that is so piecemeal and being product or managing the product is different from managing the people. So most of the places that I've worked at have actually had two types of managers. The ones that manage just the product and the product and um, the schedules and stuff, those are called producers. And they basically have their own um, discipline because that kind of administration is its own discipline. And then managers tend to come from within the department that you are in and they are more worried less about how you relate to the product, but more about your long-term growth within that field. And I tend to find that this is a better system because then the needs of the project don't necessarily conflict with my growth as a employee. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting that they would need, that they would kind of have to approach that from two different directions. When, when you worked, uh, so you transitioned over to video games for a while, right? Yep. So did you did you have a similar kind of job that you were working at there? Or did you tra- change into something different? Yeah, I consider it pretty much the same thing. Like it's the same handling the CG stuff, uh, the same pipeline. It's just that, again, the pipeline spits out a different thing at the end of the sewer rather than the film, uh, rather than, you know, frame by frame film. It's spitting out a world that the player can interact with. So the kinds of things that kinds of issues that I'm trying to, you know, yeah. uh, keep the pipe from leaking in this case is like, Oh, when the player sh- hits the button to shoot the can, does the can explode and make sure that all of those relations is sort of tightened up or when the player enters this area, it suddenly gets really, really, really slow. So you start looking for things that the um, machine is like really struggling to put as an image onto the screen. 
So basically same tech, but different yeah. goals. Yeah. That's, that's really, so did you, did you like working on like video games versus animated films? Did you like working on one more than the other? Uh, I think for me, because it was about the challenge and about the problem solving and about the craft, the end product didn't really matter to me. Um, everything, a large part of what I've worked on in terms of video games are games I don't play. I'm not an FPS person. I'm not a sports game person. Um, I'm, but like for me, it's about my coworkers, the people who are there in the office who are, we're trying to solve these challenges together. And my teams for technical art have always been really great because uh, it's about the problem solving and not the end project. Yeah. Did you find that um, kind of, so I've found that a lot of, a lot of artists, people that, you know, whatever art they do tend to be very fiercely independent. And I was kind of curious whether you find that you enjoy having more of kind of the um, the group work, the kind of being part of something much, much bigger rather than you producing your own, you know, producing your own art to, you know, sell prints of it at conventions or whatever, you know, like whatever <laughs> the kind of individual equivalent is like, do you do you consider one to be closer to who you are than the other? That is a hard question. I think I'm probably on more of the collaborative end because I think that was actually something that uh, became an important note when I moved over to Wizards. Um, And I'm actually no longer at Wizards. I will be starting at a a company called Singularity 6, making a game called Paleo come January. Yes. Really? I didn't know that you you had finished with Wizards. Uh, Surprise. (laughs) It's very recent. But basically, like, that collaboration skill of being able to communicate with different departments um, who have different needs and express those needs between other departments, like taking what the artists need and passing it to the engineers, very similar to taking the artists' needs and passing them over to the mechanics designers Yeah, over at table over in tabletop, trying to express the creative needs and the story needs in terms of numbers and in terms of how can we make the engine do this? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Like the, as somebody who works pretty much alone all the time, and this is like a a theme that I get back to (laughs) all the time, um, is this idea of kind of, uh, of working on something that you yourself are doing with kind of minimal outside help versus being part of something way, way bigger. And the collaborative aspects and things like that. It's something I come back to all the time because I find the kind of, working creatively in in a much bigger like for a corporation for a bigger kind of entity than yourself i i find that both really tantalizing in a lot of ways but also it's kind of terrifying to me the the idea of not having the creative control over what i'm actually doing um that's scary i'm sure that you could uh, i'm sure you'd probably find it more fun than it is scary yeah um basically I find creative teamwork very similar to engineering teamwork, which is why the transition over was not as difficult as I originally anticipated. Basically, I kind of stick to a bunch of brainstorming principles where it's kind of like, okay, everybody, no matter who, throw your ideas on the wall and we'll try and figure out what sticks. Because with engineering, it doesn't matter where it comes from. It's a matter of making sure that it works. (laughs) (laughs) And then 
you kind of divide and conquer being like, who's going to take on what aspects of this creative task? Who's going to write these cards? Who's going to write this story? And because those are going to be the end products the players see. And then after you divide that up, making sure that everybody who contributed gets uh, noticed, gets credit. Like this person did this aspect, this other person did this aspect. I feel that's very important to making healthy teams Yeah, is to acknowledge all the people who are working on the same thing together. So did that kind of coordination slash problem solving, did that follow you to uh, working on Magic the Gathering at Wizards of the Coast? Oh, for sure. The communication definitely. And then also because we work with so many freelance authors, so many freelance artists, it's really important to maintain those relationships by including people on the different projects and making sure like they have a role, making sure that we work on a team of four to six writers. So basically everybody being able to contribute to the storyline saying, Hey, I really like this part. Hey, I want this specific thing to happen. And it's kind of a bit of a give and take. So you've uh, one thing that you learn in the tech world, as well as the creative world is you learn how to prioritize like, which one of these ideas that you've come to love is really going to support the main theme of the story? Who's got a better one that does a better job of supporting that theme? And you basically pick your hills to die on. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think, I think authors do that too, like in their own heads, like not even necessarily with other people, but you're always like, I know I do like where I'm, I'm like, there's this aspect of, there's a character that I really want to fit into somewhere in this book and they just don't fit in. I get, I, I have to scrap them. I have to use them for something else. You know, things like that. Yeah. Imagine it's like, it's like playing kill your darlings, but like on a team. <laughs> so sometimes you can be like, I don't know if I really like this guy. And you're like, Hey, Emily, Roy, uh, should we keep him? And if they're both like, no, then you're like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't end up in those, uh, one thing I love about the creative uh, creative collaboration is it's much harder to get stuck in your own head yeah. because you can just reach out and ask somebody, did I do this right? Does this planeswalker sound this way? And you get those immediate feedback sounding boards. I, man, getting stuck in my own head is, that is an issue I run into. I, I think the pandemic made it much worse. Good, I can see that. <laughs> it's a thing that I feel like I run into more and more as I get older and further along. It's just, man, you get, you get stuck in these dumb loops that you can't break out of because you can't really like, you're not even at a place creative creatively where you can express it to another person. I'll try to like talk something through with my wife and I'll finish for 10 minutes (laughs) and she'll just stare at me. Like, I didn't understand a word you just said. Yeah. I try to, God, because I do my own independent work too. And those moments are the hardest. Usually what I do is I just end up putting it down because I, as a, part of the corporate world, I get to set my own schedule with <laughs> my, with my like personal writing. Yeah. And then sometimes it's like you come back to it, but also when you are doing the creative collaboration and you, well, you got to hit deadlines and those deadlines are always come real fast, faster than you ever want them to. So, well, and when you're a small part of something bigger, those deadlines are a lot more important. Yes. You know, if I miss a deadline by three months, my publisher will just kind of shrug and say, well, we'll push you back, uh, you know, by a quarter, um, you know, like, 
they're okay with that as long as they get warning and they can shuffle things around a little bit. But if you mess a deadline on a project that's a $100 million project. God, being able to delay something like that, that's so nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. If the writers at Wizards, like, if we're one week late, then art loses a week. If art loses a week, then graphic design loses a week. And it just adds up and adds up. Um, and there's a very hard deadline, too, because the product needs to be printed. And this printing needs to happen. And then the product needs to again be shipped to all the different stores around the world. So every magic set is actually creatively completed about a year before the product actually gets bought by audiences. Oh, and, and, but you need that lead time. Like you need it like, like for shipping delays, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, somebody gets stuck in the Suez canal again, right? <laughs> if there's a global pandemic and we're suddenly all buying everything from Amazon, there's going to be shipping delays, right? It's just, it's crazy. The biggest worry now is the global paper shortage. Oh, yes. I think that impacts both of us. Yes. And that's one of those like weird things where you, you'll hear somebody scream about it and then it'll be silent. Nobody will talk about it for six months. And you'll be like, is there still a paper shortage? And you ask someone that knows and they're like, oh, yeah, this is horrible. And you're like, oh, well, thanks. I, I, maybe I didn't want to know. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do you, so this question, I had a question that's kind of specifically for Magic the Gathering, but like mm -hmm. more even broadly for kind of the different places that you've worked but the, when you go into a project um do you find you end up starting your job with like a lot of homework like when you started with wizards of the coast did you have to spend two months reading world bibles and learning everything that came before uh well one i'll just say i'm glad i went to engineering school because research is a very in my opinion it's kind of like the core backbone of my weird, weird career, yeah. because my belief is you're never done learning. You only learn how to learn. So at the beginning of every job, including the tech ones, there is like maybe a week or two of ramp up where you try to learn all the tools that you're going to be working with. And this also is a time where you meet the people that you're going to be working with and you try to get a handle on what those relationships are. And for wizards specifically, 
I was thrown in pretty fast. Like I think I had maybe a week of training, but because I had all of that experience as a technical person, I was able to find a lot of the resources I needed to get ramped up pretty quickly because I knew like, all right, I'm going to need to know where the files are. I'm needing to know what the tech is that I'm going to be conversing with. I need to know what the end product is that I'm going to be designing. So what I'm going to do there is I'm going to look for, I'm going to look in the tech, go into the program itself. And I'm also going to try and find examples of the thing that I'm supposed to be making. So for that, it would have been like art briefs for the cards. These are the instructions that get sent out to the artists who are drawing the cards. Um, because that's like a really core portion of the writer job at Wizards. And so by finding examples of what people have already created, I use that kind of engineering brain to work backwards into how can I make my own versions of this in an efficient manner. Yeah. Right. Cause you, you need it to be like, I imagine with creating this kind of stuff for something like magic, the gathering, you have to, you have to be able to create something that is both a little bit unique, but also very much has the vibe that is expected. <laughs> like, yeah, that's where the world guides come in. Right. There's like this, there's like this meshing here that you kind of have to have this creative balance with. Yeah. It's like, um, you're basically playing in somebody else's world. And you use this process of reading the mechanic and trying to find out what character, what situation, what spell within the world from that world guide best represents that mechanic. So if it's like, you know, one of the big magic things is like red is direct damage, right? It lets you, Lava Axe lets you hit someone in the face. So if you're designing a reprint of Lava Axe or something that's mechanically similar to Lava Axe, you basically want to ask the artist for a drawing of somebody doing a powerful spell that casts a lot of damage. And then you look at the world guide and say, Hey, I would like the person who's a spellcaster to uh, look like somebody from this particular faction. They all wear red because love acts is a red spell. And basically you're writing. It's closer to technical or instructional writing um, because the end product is going to be the picture and the picture is what's going to convey all of this information to the player. I, I was very curious. Um, and this is something that may be more apparent to players that nowadays, but like, yeah, cause I haven't played magics for 22 years, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I always wondered, even when I was a little kid, I always wondered about how much does narrative matter? for kind of the greater product of magic, the other, because even when I was younger, like, you know, cards would have, you know, cards would have themes and there would be characters that you would see in different bits of art on different cards. And there was clearly things going on in the background, but the play was what was mad, what mattered because it's a card game. And I'm, I'm curious whether, like if narrative saying takes a back seat to play, I mean, that, that seemed probably pretty obvious, but like, does narrative matter at all? So this is um, narrative matters a lot, actually a lot more than players suspect because players don't seem to realize that there are many, many types of narrative. And I think that this is one of like, what we're used to when we hear the word narration is we think of prose books or someone reading a story to us word for word, and we need to listen to what they say. 
like and pay attention to those words. But video games and card games and just games in general are telling stories in a different way. You have to kind of expand your definition of what storytelling is to be a definition where it's like, how does one take a player or reader on an emotional journey? Not necessarily through words, but also it could be through images or through gameplay. Like one of my favorite examples in video games being Hades. Like the more times you die, the more things you unlock. And the progression of that within that game actually tells a story. It's telling the story of Zagreus getting stronger and stronger. And because the different, the, the resonance between the skill that you get, what it's called and how you use it and when you use it is actually a form of Ludo narrative, which is gameplay narrative. And that's very similar with Magic the Gathering is we have this story layer, the story of like what's happening to the Planeswalkers, um, who are these new characters and stuff like that. But with Magic, people are going to be engaging in the game at a card-by-card gameplay level. So they're going to be looking like, oh, this is my uh, 1-1 creature with haste. And so you focus less on telling a story that has a complete arc and you focus more about building a world that the players can imagine this creature living in that the players can imagine them you know you are a planeswalker like visiting they're like oh if i visited ixalan i will see a one-to-one speedy little monkey goblin and you build out the narrative via its world and the relationships between the different groups of people live in the world rather than by doing the more cinematic thing of following a single main character through an arc yeah yeah that makes total sense i i mean like when i was when i was you know 12 like and i was i I would look i would just look at the magic cards for hours like i would just i would read the little quotes i would look at the pictures i would i would you know because i don't know if they even still do this but they would include a tiny little packet in the um, big card decks that gave like a little snippet of story. I loved that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't know. I, I just, that, that background of what, what was going on in the world and, and drawing me in like that. I, I almost felt like I liked that more than I liked actually playing the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm actually, um, I'm definitely not pro tour material. <laughs> when I play. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't really care if I win. I'm just here for a good time. (laughs) Yeah. That's another thing I love about games though, is you can engage on them in different levels. Like you're engaging them, engaging in the uh, visual and slight bits of story because it triggers your imagination. Yeah. Um, Other people, like for me, I play magic socially. It's about like, seeing me and my friends unleash cool combos on each other. And some people, they literally just play to win. They just, well, net deck the thing that is the most powerful in the meta at the time. And they want to win. I, when I did play, I remember being very annoyed when I played against someone who was really aggressive because to me, kind of like you, it was like a social experience where I would, I wanted to sit down I wanted to, you know, shuffle and then I wanted to make it last. Like I didn't want the game to be over in five minutes. Like it, that didn't seem the point to it to me. <laughs> to me, it was, I'm here to hang out with my friend and we happen to be playing a game at the same time. 
And so like anytime I was like tried to play against somebody who I didn't know who was like really into it, <laughs> it was like, well, this is not fun anymore. Yeah. Um, I think that's something that magic is really working towards is understanding different types of players. Having been in the game industry for so long, um, even like as a student and studying it, you go from, we've gone from the definition of a game is something that has a win condition to studying what are called like player profiles. So we did a lot of this at EA, actually. We used like a lot of survey material um, to discover why people play games and why certain demographics play games. Like, are you a socially driven player? Are you an achievement player driven player? Are you just somebody who plays games to relax? Yeah, no, I, I can totally see that. It's like, even just looking around at like, kind of like my real life friend group, we all have different goals for when we're playing games. And it's, it's really interesting to kind of see that because some of us are, we really want to win. And some of us just want to hang out and it's, you know, each, everybody's a little bit different, even though we're all friends and we've known each other for, you know, 20, 25 years. It's, uh, you know, we, we all kind of, we all drift towards something different, even when we're playing the same game. Yeah. And I also think that this, now that basically we live in this weird attention economy, right? Like people are like Netflix, Hulu, video games, books and stuff. And basically every entertainment thing is just competing for people's time. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what the market has become. Um, I think that this kind of trying to find people that are looking for a certain um, emotional satisfaction out of their entertainment is better than sequestering things by medium nowadays we're like oh because books and film are really good for people who want to step out of themselves and like discover a story from the perspective of somebody else which if you're in a video game where you inherently have agency because you're moving around the world and you're the one making the actions then you aren't you don't have that weird empathetic connection that makes books and movies so good. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's all kind of, it makes different parts of your brain kind of fire depending on what you're doing, what you're engaging with, um, how you're engaging with it, all that stuff. Um, but well, I have kept you quite a long time. (laughs) I, I like to, I like to end every episode by asking every guest the same question, which is what's the last food that you ate that blew your mind? Um, this, isn't the last thing. Can I say something that I just thought about that I really want, but haven't had in a really long time? Yeah. Give me, give me, the, thing, give me the thing that popped into your head. Okay. It's the Moroccan chicken pastilla. Oh, tell me about that. <laughs> so like, it's this, it's like ground chicken in a phyllo dough pastry, but it's like seasoned with, cinnamon and a combination of sweet and savory spices and topped with powdered sugar and somehow that savory sweet combination plus like the lightness of the phyllo dough is like so unique and the last time i had it was before the pandemic and it's really difficult to make so i can't make it myself (laughs) and i just want one man i like i i don't think i've ever had anything like that and that sounds really interesting It, it was so unique like I don't know. It just tastes so good. Did, did you have a place that you'd get it from? <laughs> uh, there's one place here that serves it. Uh, there's only one like Moroccan restaurant, but I've had it when I visited Morocco 
back in 2017 and like it's just been stuck in my head since <laughs> Ooh, i love when you i love when you get like a i love when you get a meal that just kind of lives kind of in the back of your brain for years and years you know it just i it's just so like like i uh <laughs> this isn't even a meal it just I had um, an experience when uh, Michelle and I went to London, um, 2019, I think it was. And we um, we went down to Dover to go see the castle. And it was a horrible, rainy, stormy day. And we decided <laughs> to walk up to the castle like idiots. And so we get up there and we're soaked to the bone. We're miserable. There's no one else there, which was actually quite cool, um, except for the tour guides. <laughs> And, and so we get there and the first thing we do is like run into the cafe and we order some pastries and some tea. Oh. And at that point, I guess, I think I'd been drinking tea a little bit here and there. Like, oh, like, oh, we're going to London. I'll start drinking tea. But like that moment was the moment I started drinking tea every single day. Wow. Because it felt so comforting. It was like getting a little nice warm hug. Mm-hmm. Like after walking through the rain. And like that, just that moment lives in my brain now. Yeah. I, I actually can remember where I had like that mind blowing pastilla. I literally, it was just, I just needed something to eat. There was a bakery next door and like I bit into it and I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. That is excellent. That was author, artist, and game designer, Grace P. Fong. Thanks again to Grace for coming on to chat. You can find Grace's website and social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jason Nall, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, Taylon, Brian, Will Lebelski, and Bradley Thornhill for their backing on Patreon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.